0: How are you doing today, Abby?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: Good. So we've both been doing a lot of conferences this year. What's been your thoughts or big takeaways from the conferences we've gone through this year with uh, Swift Toronto and 360 iDev?
1: I think the takeaway is always the same for me. It's just how good it is to kind of be around. A whole bunch of people that are excited and curious and interested in sharing knowledge and and learning from each other. It's such a break from the normal day to day where you're just having to figure out how to do your work. And instead, you get to really nerd out and and dive into things that are exciting and also be introduced to things that you never thought about before. And it's kind of embarrassing, but I had never noticed that there was an AI search or machine learning search feature inside the Photos app until someone showed it inside a talk at 360 iDev. And that just <laughs> kind of blew my mind. I, I went and searched my photos for the word pizza and I found pictures of pizza. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like I use it to search for like my kids, like, oh, I want to find every photo with my three-year-old and two-year-old or whatever. And like I just recently ran into that where you can like search for actual objects. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. I almost wanted to have like a drinking game at the conferences. Every time somebody says Swift UI, you take a shot because like, <laughs> yeah. you definitely it's a big deal and, and rightfully so. But like. I don't know if it's like overblown, but I definitely think, I think it's a major deal, but I also feel hesitant about suggesting anybody like rewrite their app in SwiftUI at this point. It's changing quite a bit every day. I think we're almost at the end of it.
1: And I think also it's just been a little bit too much. When it came out, everybody was very excited to write new talks or change current talks to use or suggest using SwiftUI and we ended up in a situation where a large percentage of the talks would be about Swift UI. And the truth is, I actually didn't attend any of them because at this point, there's so much content out there that I felt like it was a lot more valuable to attend the other talks because I can find all of that online quite easily at this point. In the future, it won't be like that because in the future, the framework's going to expand. There's going to be more things added to it. More niche ideas will start coming out. But right now, it's a lot of the same information. And it's a little bit overwhelming to the point that I've kind of lost interest since I can't actually use it in work yet. I'm sure that it'll be very exciting when I can, but currently I can't. So,
0: Yeah, I'm working with a watch app and like that's where I've really seen the benefit of Swift Y is in that space. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where it was originally intended for. But like it's like still kind of under and just seems like we're kind of... F- where Swift was like five years ago, where it's like, oh, this is awesome. But then like, once you get into the weeds of things, it doesn't do everything you want it to do. And there's a few things missing that you'd think would, would be there initially.
1: Yeah. And I think actually one thing that is really exciting about it is that it's going to really open up the space for designers to prototyping code because it is going to make it a lot more simple. So designers that are interested in a little bit of code, but don't actually want to learn All of Xcode and all of IB are going to be able to kind of put their ideas down a lot quicker in code to share it with the developers.
0: Do you see like designers already doing that on the web with like HTML? Like most of the designers I work with, they tend to use stuff like Envision or XD or like Photoshop to do their designs. Do you know designers that will actually just get into like the HTML code and like build a web page that way and then say here, clean it up. Is that what you're thinking?
1: I don't know many currently, but I do know many that would like to be able to do that. But I think that the learning curve even with HTML is is going to be higher than with Swift UI because with HTML you need to like you need to know, you know, all the ways to do all the CSS to make everything like really look nice. Whereas Swift UI is a lot more straightforward. And I think they're going to be able to at least get basic ideas down and we'll see a situation where Especially smaller companies will have a designer that is kind of making skeleton files and then handing them off to the developer to improve and tweak.
0: Yeah, I think that makes total sense. Like the preview stuff. Yeah. I think it's a big improvement over what we've seen with storyboards or even just like coding your own UI.
1: Yeah. And I also think that it's going to make programming appear or seem easier for people that are a little bit scared of the idea of programming, scared of technology, think they can't do it because of that preview. They're going to, it's going to be more like, building something in WordPress or more like just laying something out in Microsoft Word or anything like that, it'll be easier for them to see the visual results right away. And it'll make the code less scary because they'll be able to see exactly what that code is going to do. I think it's really going to bring the barrier down for people that are, think that they can't program and they're going to see that uh, actually they can. Maybe they won't get really interested in like the deep programming, but I think it's going to break some barriers down.
0: Yeah, I think one of the problems for experienced Swift developers, and I feel like this is true whenever like something big changes or something new comes along, is we have a preset mindset of how things are done. I almost think it's like easier for a new person to learn Swift UI who has less experience with Swift and iOS development than it would be for somebody experienced. Like, especially with MVC, we have all these preset patterns of how things are to be done. And it's like, no, 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 everything's changing. It's like this. And then once you wrap your head around it, it, it then it becomes much more natural and easier to move forward with. Yeah, definitely. So I uh, started building this watch app that I'm working on. It also has vapor. So I did, I did that talk on vapor in Toronto and then I have this watch app and there's a little bit of JavaScript and HTML, but I was listening to your talk, which was awesome in Toronto. And I've run into this quite a few times where I'm building an app, especially an app where it's like. Apple's definitely trying to push more stuff to the Mac, right? So like bring your iPad app or make a SwiftUI app, just native, like I discussed with Daniel a few weeks ago, you could just build a native Mac app in SwiftUI and then you could like share the code in different apps. So like, for instance, with this app that I'm building, calling it Heart Twitch. are you a video gamer at all? No, (laughs) Okay. I can barely pay (laughs) (laughs) Pac-Man. So no Apple Arcade for you? No. (laughs) So the idea of the app is like people who live stream on Twitch, sometimes they want to share their heart rate. So you run the watch app and you could share your heart rate basically in the browser and then use a streaming software to just share that window when you're live streaming, some streamers are into the sharing their health stats and some aren't, but that's an example of like, okay, I want to share like the struct between two classes. And when I heard your talk, I've run into this with a few other client projects where we're building multiple platforms, Apple platforms, organizing your projects in Xcode is so important. And so I was really, when I heard your talk, I was like, yes, this, we need to talk about this because we did an episode a couple months ago with an app architecture and the importance of that with testing. But I think the stuff with like modularizing your code and Xcode is so important because I think one of the challenges is is like a previous .NET developer. You know, I used to use Visual Studio and it took a while, but then once I figured out, okay, this is how you organize a project in a workspace in Visual Studio. I was like, okay, that makes sense. And then, you know, starting with doing iOS development it was like, okay, now I got to learn a whole new way of doing things with Xcode. Yeah, And Xcode has like a lot of antiquated patterns with like C++ development and some older, now even more antiquated stuff with like objective C or even storyboards we can get into. But like, there is a lot you can do with Xcode as far as modularizing your projects and your frameworks in such a way that things are like componentized and kind of isolated in a certain way so that testing is easier and things can be reused. That's why I feel like is one of the biggest challenges with Xcode is once you figured that out, it's like, okay, now this makes sense. And now I can like, things will work together in harmony, so to speak.
1: Yeah, it can be really hard. Xcode has this huge learning curve. I never programmed anything except for in Xcode. This is where I've started. So it wasn't as big for me, but it was still huge. And when I've seen developers come over from other platforms and just watch them just struggle and as it's, it's so, I can see them. It's so demoralizing for them to come over and, you know, be a great developer in another platform and then struggle to use an IDE something that they've never struggled to use an IDE before. And uh, Xcode just has this huge learning curve. But once you learn it, it's really powerful. And there's a lot of stuff in there that I still don't know. And I'll ask a question from somebody and they'll be like, you know, use this setting in Xcode. I'll have no idea that it even existed still.
0: Yeah, exactly. Because like even with this app, it's an independent watch app. And I'm like, I had to figure out how to set a custom plist file for an app container and it's like going into build the settings it's like reading an encyclopedia or something like that like <laughs> you got to decode every little build so setting in there yeah so let's start off by talking about like the different components that we use in Xcode and to me like the main one is the project right so how does a project work in Xcode
1: sure so in Xcode you have a project file which is what Xcode opens. And the project file is like a bundle that contains all the resources that are needed for the project itself. So all the settings, links to code or images found, it could be those code or images could be in the same directory as the project file, or they could be in other directories. It also contains other files that maybe like hold your breakpoint settings if you want to have project level breakpoints, stuff like that. And the project can have multiple targets and those targets inside the project, they're essentially like a set of instructions that are in the form of project settings. And those instructions tell Xcode how to build a product using the files that are within the project. So inside a project, we have a, a test target and we have an app target or if it's a module, an SDK, you have a module target, which could be you know a static framework, something like that. You could also have a packaging target, which is just an aggregate target. That essentially only lets you put in like a build script that you could run. But the point is that all of these targets, first of all, they all inherit settings from the parent project, or they have their own settings, which allows you to do different things for different targets. But they also all can have access to the files that are within the project. You can specify what target each file has a membership for, and it's a little setting on the side panel, literally called target membership. and um, This allows you to, for example, you could have an app and the app is exactly the same except for two or three different screens depending on who you're building this for, right? So maybe you're going to build your app for you have a QA target. That QA target could have a different login screen that lets them do some extra stuff versus the regular target that actually goes out to the consumer. All those targets are within the same project and they all have access to the same project files. But when the actual QA app is built, it uses the file that's assigned to the QA target. And when the app project is built, it uses the file that's assigned to the app target.
0: Okay, that brings up a really good point. So do you use separate targets for QA and production? Or do you use built configuration for that?
1: It can really depend on what your goals are. I have done both ways. If you need to use different screens, like the situation that I just described, you're going to probably want to do a separate target.
0: Okay, that makes total sense. You're talking about like a storyboard, correct?
1: Correct, yeah. Or even just separate files, separate model files. If you just want to have almost everything the same, but just a couple files different, the target is the easiest way to do it.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point about targets. So basically a target is kind of a deliverable, would you say?
1: Well, it could be. A target basically is related to a product. So the product could be your test bundle that you're building or it could be the app bundle. So I wouldn't necessarily call it a deliverable, but basically it would be whatever you want to build for that specific chunk of work.
0: Gotcha. Okay. I like the point you made about aggregate target, because I think like I've used those quite a bit whenever there's any like prep work I need to do for another target where it's dependent on. That's another thing we should probably mention is like dependencies. So certain targets can have dependencies on other targets and those could all be managed within the target build settings. So to get to a target, that's where you would like tap on the project at the root of your file navigator. This is a podcast, so apologize to my listeners. But we have the file navigator to the left. So you click on the root where you have the project and then that will show you that little main window. And then on the left of part of the main window is where it lists out all the targets, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. So within your project, if you had just a project file and you had just a project file open in Xcode, then within your project, your different targets can depend on each other and you would list whatever other target depends on it in the target dependency section. So for example, if you, we're using an aggregate target for your packaging. There's other ways to do packaging, but that's really the most common way of doing it. And when I say packaging, I mean for the frameworks, not for the app specifically. You would you know, archive right. the app. If you're going to package a framework using an aggregate target, then in the target dependencies for the aggregate target, you would list the actual app target, or sorry, the actual SDK target itself. And basically what that does is it ensures that Xcode will rebuild the the product target, the SDK in this case, before it runs the aggregate target so that everything is up to date. And it also makes sure that any new changes are found because Xcode won't build it if nothing has changed, which is a nice time-saving optimization that helps here. You don't have to actually do it. If you were using scripts in the console and you ran the project first and then you ran the aggregate target, you'd be running the project every single time, even if there were no changes, which you know, in a large project that can add up to significant time differences between the two. So that's one thing that is handy about those. But having them also, um, the targets like that, for example, in your test target, you can do testable import and you can import the project target into your test target. So it's having them all kind of linked that way through targets. It allows XCO to do implicit linking between the targets. In some cases, in some cases, you have to be more explicit about
0: it. Yeah, that's a really good point. One thing, for instance, with independent watch apps, if you go into a project, create a new project, and you say you want to build an independent watch app, like that alone gets you like three targets right out of that. So, like, there's usually, not always, but usually multiple targets to a project, even just out of the using the regular Xcode templates.
1: Yeah. Usually you'll have the project target as well as a a test target, either both the unit test targets, perhaps. Yeah. The unit test and the UI testing if you check those boxes off when you open it. Now, the other thing is that you can actually have multiple project files inside a workspace file, right? So a workspace file is kind of like a congregation of multiple projects. And you get a lot of the same stuff that you get from projects. For example, you can have implicit relationships between the projects that are inside it. And you can also get implicit relationships between targets. But you can't have files from, unlike a target, you can't have files from one project be assigned to a membership of another project. Whereas for multiple targets, you can have the files assigned to multiple targets because they're within that project. Because each project kind of has its own sandbox. It's its own bundle. But by using a workspace, Xcode kind of knows how to dip into those bundles to make implicit relationships. So once again, if you had one project that had a target dependency of another project, Xcode would build the other project first if there had been changes before building the project that you're building.
0: Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm gonna talk about real world example like with this app. Unfortunately, like you have a separate project in Vapor for the server side component, and then the watch app has its own separate Xcode project just because of the way it works. But between them, they share a struct which contains the heart rate. What's the best way for me then to have this heart rate? Like right now, I'm just copying the code because it's a struct with one property, it's not a big deal. But like in the future, if that struct becomes more complicated, like those two, the Vapor project and the Apple Watch app to share the same struct. What's then the best way to do that?
1: Right. Actually, it's a really, really good use case. So if you had a workspace and you had two projects, you said that it was two projects, right? Not two targets.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, like Vapor, you can do it as a Swift package, which we'll get into later, but that doesn't really work all that well yet. So you can generate an Xcode project out of the Swift package as you can with like all Swift packages. So I use the Xcode project right now for the Vapor server side component. And then for the Apple Watch app, yeah, that's a separate project, which of course contains the three targets, the app container, the app, and then the app extension. Right. So the app extension obviously is the one that contains the watch code and that has a struct, but also the Vapor app also has a struct, which basically is just one property with a heart rate. Double.
1: Right. That is an, a really good use case. So you could do it a couple of different ways, right? One way that you could do it is having both those projects inside the same workspace. You can actually open up the API of one or the other. I'm going to assume that you probably want that struct to be hosted on the Vapor side. Okay, And then, it, I mean, it really depends on your architecture, but let's say that you want the source of truth for that struct to be on the Vapor side, right? So basically you would open up the API of that Vapor project so that there was some kind of function that would allow the app or the watch app to access it. And you would include the packaged product of the Vapor project as a dependency on the watch app that would allow you to link implicitly into it and call. Often a very common way of passing data between modules in a setup like this would be to use uh, protocols. But there's a lot of different ways that you can do that, and that's that's kind of a bigger topic. But you find a way to pass it, just like you would with any SDK. If you were to use any kind of third-party framework, anything, they can pass data to you somehow, right? And protocol is a great way of doing it.
0: Right. The struct is shared in a sense of, like, basically JSON is being sent from the client, which is the watch app, to the server. And so I want, like, the basic struct data to be the same, so that way when each side JSON decodes it, that it will be the same essential like format, right? That's kind of the use case there. It's where where it's like passing the JSON data from the watch app to the server. So I wanted to have the same struct in that sense.
1: Right. So you could have a function in your server project which, you know, accepted the data and have your watch be sending it through that way. And that that's like one way that you could do it. You could also have a, a third framework between the two that is shared between them that kind of acts as a buffer between them. Basically, by having this workspace set up, you can link between all of your projects. Now, you can also control what is shared. And one of the things I really like about using protocols to pass data between them is that you're not actually accessing the specific class. So you're not violating any kind of responsibility principles. The watch doesn't need to know what the Vapor project is doing with it. It only needs to know that it needs to send something in a specific format.
0: Yeah, cool. So... What are some use cases you've seen of how products are organized? Do you have specific use cases or patterns that you've seen where it's like, oh, this makes sense to have one project with multiple targets. This makes sense to have a workspace with separate projects. What have you seen in most of your cases?
1: Yeah, I think the singular project setup um, is good if you have an app that you're not really planning to modularize. It's a small app. You don't need it to scale. You're not expecting it to grow very big or for development to continue for a long time. Because one of the things about modularizing an app is that it does add overhead as far as getting set up. It takes longer to get it all set up and to think through the way that you'll you'll do things. You can't just import a file into another file and access things. You have to actually have a proper API that the modules can use to speak to each other. And and that can take a lot of time to design before you actually even start doing the work in your design phase of planning your work. So if it's something that is not going to grow very big, that you need done quickly, that is not going to be really changed or maintained very much, it's probably not worth it to split it up, even if you are the kind of person that really likes to have things really well done. You know, it's kind of the argument between Is MVC massive view controller really such a bad thing if you're just doing a a quick thing, a quick demo app? In a lot of cases, it really doesn't matter because you're not going to scale. You're not going to keep working on it. And what you really need, you need to look at what your objectives are for the work that you're doing. So if your objective is to get something done quickly, to get something done that works and isn't going to continue development, then I would just do like a normal project. I wouldn't bother trying to modularize anything at all. However, if you're going to want to really scale this, if you think the project is going to grow and grow and grow, if you think your team's going to grow especially, then definitely I would say that modularization is a really good idea because as your project grows, there's a lot of things that you can get from having different components in separate modules, right? Even if you're not going to do the whole app, even if you're just going to do some very specific components, for example... Your persistence layer is a really good example of something that could be modularized because you can provide a public API for it, you know, save item, retrieve item, whatever. And the internals can change and it's not going to matter to the rest of the app that's using it, which means that you can swap out, you know, Realm for Core Data. You could use Firebase. You could make changes inside and they're Mm -hmm. not going to hurt things in the rest of the app because the API is not going to change. And something that's really, really powerful about that is if you don't have it modularized it's very easy to build the classes or the functions that are using your persistence layer to use your persistence layer in a different way depending on what service you're using for that persistence you know you might know that core data does a certain thing a certain way and so you know when you're building your authentication you are thinking about that as you work and that really doesn't separate things that well makes things less scalable because what happens if later you decide your company decides to switch to something else like realm or firebase and now it's not just the persistence that you have to change but you have to change the way that the rest of the project uses it it's a really strong case for arguing that, that that's a good one to modularize another reason why it's good to modularize is that a lot of times that persistence layer the way that it's used the product that's used whether it's cordata realm etc is actually used by every product that the company has, if the company has multiple apps. In very few cases, are they going to use one kind of persistence in one and a different kind of persistence in another? It's a lot of overhead. And so by modularizing that, they'll be encouraged to make it generic. So it's like save item, not save user, right? So they're going to use protocols to make it generic. And... They'll be able to reuse that module, so they'll have only upkeep on one project, one persistence project that will be able to be used by multiple other projects rather than having to have developers know how persistence is built in this app and how persistence is built in that app and having to make changes in multiple places when you want to make a change across all of them.
0: That's a really awesome point. It reminds me of our episode we did with Renee and Josh when they talked about app architecture. It seems like we're still coming back to the point of like protocol oriented programming and making things in such a way that testing is easier. And like almost there's this term of like with like persistency or persistent data access is like, you don't care how that data is done so much as it's just, it is accomplished and making that particular component easier to be tested.
1: You can definitely do it with classes, but there's just so much overhead that comes with the class because you're going to inherit everything, even stuff you don't need. And of course, it's also a lot harder to make a generic class.
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. I think now I'm starting to think a little bit more about how to deal with this. Like, let's say you do need to do multiple projects. How do you separate that stuff in source control? Or how do you separate the modules in source control? Because it sounds to me like in the one project case, you're pretty much stuck with like one big repo for everything. But once you like need to set things separated in such a way that they can be shared across different Git repos, how do you manage that? Or have you usually just had everything in one repo?
1: So this is actually a really huge question because um, there's so, no, 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 it's good. There's so many options. so. First of all, if you had just a single project and it's a big project, whether you had it modularized using targets, which I don't recommend modularizing with targets, but you can do it and you'll find articles online that discuss how to do it. There's a lot of reasons for that. I would recommend just watching my talk because I talk about them uh, rather than getting into it here. But whether you're going to do that or you're going to just have an app with no modularization at all, if you have a, a big single project, There are still actually ways that you can separate things out, but it's complicated and you'll get a lot of overhead. You'll be using Git submodules and then you'll probably want to have some kind of like run script that will install the files into the correct directories. And I just bring it up because I want to point out that it's still possible. It's, It's not that it's not possible, but it's just going to be more complicated. If you wanted to have things in different locations, there are a number of ways you could do it. For example, if you have a workspace with multiple projects in it, you could quite easily use uh, like a Git submodules or a Git subtrees t- to manage all of that. You could also separate your work if you don't necessarily want to have everything in the same workspace, like the actual project that you're working on. You could use a Swift Package Manager, a Carthage, or CocoaPods to actually bring those dependencies in, such as a shared uh, persistence layer into your project. You could also have all of those projects in the workspace so you can develop them as you go but have a different targets on your actual app. So you could have a, a development target on your app, which is implicitly using the, the dependencies that are inside the workspace. Okay. And then you could also have a production target, which when it is archived, uses Carthage or Swift Package Manager or whatever to grab the the artifacts themselves. The reason why you may or may not want to do that, there's a few reasons. One, it means that you can actually QA those targets, or sorry, those uh, modules and know that what you're queuing is the actual artifacts that are being built versus Xcode finding implicit things. For example, let's say you have a situation where you've messed up and for some reason you're not including a specific asset with one of your modules. If you're queuing just directly through Xcode, you might not see that because Xcode might implicitly find it. Whereas if you're using the targets or the packaged artifacts themselves, you're going to know. So you could choose to have two targets. That's actually a really good way of doing it if you're an SDK developer versus an app developer because chances are if you're an SDK developer, the way that QA is going to QA that kind of stuff or validate the SDK that you're giving out to clients, they need to be a client. So they need to actually bring the artifact into the project. And uh, you probably don't want to have multiple demo apps, one for development, one for QA because that's just a lot of extra work. So you could have multiple targets instead. And when QA builds it, The QA target could be set to only use the packages that are coming from, you know, Artifactory or CocoaPods or Carthage or Swift Package Manager, and then they'll know if there's a problem. Whereas in development, you're not doing that. And some people might argue that that's not necessarily good, you know, but then don't you want to know there's a problem in development? But first of all, that's a huge time suck if while in development, you have to be downloading the artifacts. And also, you could be working on two different modules at the same time, and you need those changes picked up as you work. Right. And of course, there's also the other argument that if there is a problem when it gets to validation, that is a build pipeline problem and not a development problem. So if the developer, while they're working, doesn't see these errors, that means that like the work that they're doing, the developing, is correct. Whereas by the time it gets to validation, if there's a problem with linking, file not found, etc., That shouldn't impede a developer from doing their development work, especially if you have a separate uh, person or team that's responsible for the actual build pipeline.
0: Okay. One of the issues I've run into is I would love to use Swift Package Manager, but the problem is like if I need to make changes to that package, it becomes really, really difficult because now, you know, it's dependent on whatever that GitHub repo is that's external to me. I mean, it is my repo, but it's still external in some fashion. Whereas I prefer like to keep making changes to that package as I work on the product, for instance.
1: You could actually just have all of that inside your workspace, right? So while you're developing, you're updating and you're seeing the live changes and then Depending on your your setup, you could have your CI, your build pipeline, do like nightly builds and have those nightly builds run the production target, which pulls from, like does the whole packaging and pulls from Swift, you know, uploads the Swift package, the newly packaged Swift package, and then downloads it into using the Swift package manager into the app and runs the build that way. And then that way each night you would know if there was a problem somewhere.
0: Yeah, exactly. Cool. What are some of the best practices that you've seen development shops or companies do to optimize their products and how they're organized? Obviously we've talked like, don't try to optimize too early. I feel like that's a big motto in my life is like, especially as programmers, we want things like we optimize the CI without thinking about what that customers actually want. And it's like, no, 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 slow down. Like just build it so that it looks good and works great. And then optimize, modularize as you go on. But like what have you seen most companies do or like some top 3 like best practices when it comes to modularizing?
1: It's really interesting sometimes companies do just go full ahead and they, they don't think about if this is the right decision for them or not and can't remember which company but there are a couple of them that have published articles about why we unmodularize basically. And um mm-hmm. using modularization, you get a lot of optimization with it already if it's set up all properly because For example, the build times are significantly decreased. If you have a very large project and you have all of your core components modularized, if you're building the app, you made one change to one module, only that module is going to be built by Xcode versus if you have this same app without modularization, the entire module, because in this case, it's the app is a module. So the entire app is rebuilt every time the developer needs to run which especially in Swift, the build times can be really long. Uh, one company I saw built or published their findings where they saved something like four days of time per sprint per developer in build times. Wow. That was an extreme example. But on average, I'd say like one or two days per developer of, of savings on large projects can't be conceivable just because we don't think about it, but five, 10 minutes, you know, even just five minutes now you're you're waiting and you you lose context, you lose focus, so you switch to something else, you come back. it's a lot of wasted time. It's a, it's really hard for developers to stay on track when it's constantly context switching like that or just constantly taking pauses. You take a pause, you talk to the person next to you. the build finishes. now it's two or three more minutes before you feel like you get back into it and it, it really doesn't sound like much, but it adds up like it really really adds up. yes, yes, it does. So huge, huge time savings. Another thing that is really optimized is um, you can really optimize your your build pipeline because you can put different components through different different pipelines and you can also have your CI only build the components that have changed. So during the day, for example, when commits come in or depending on how big or how small your, your team is, if you have a really, if it's one or two people, maybe you want to do this more on a weekly basis. But So say during the week when commits come in, you just start building the module because maybe you only get five or six commits throughout that week. So you're building only the module. And then at the end of the week or in a larger team at the end of the day, you build the whole package and rather than building everything. So it's a big time saving, but it's also a a huge cost savings because you're not having to run that project through. If a build takes 15 minutes through your pipeline or 20 minutes through your pipeline for a big project and you have 15 commits going in every day, that's a lot of time if you're building the entire thing. And I've worked on projects like that where I actually worked on a project where the build was about 45 minutes when it went through CI. Oh and my we gosh. had a lot of people on that project, a couple dozen people. And you can imagine there were a lot of commits that came through. And in that project, we had optimized as much as possible, but there were limitations that we were facing that we couldn't really optimize too much more. But if a company had a situation like that where they were able to optimize it, where there was legitimate value in running only the module that changes were happening to, you know, it would be a five minutes instead of 20, and you times that by 10 yes. commits a day. It's a huge cost savings when you're doing some kind of CI that's a per second basis or per minute basis or something that is by the data that's used. That It's a big savings to the company and time savings for the developer. But also sometimes you might have situations where Specific parts need to go through a specific pipeline, and maybe that pipeline is out of your control, and it's quite expensive. For example, if you need part of your project to go through some kind of like security check every time, every night, rather than sending the whole project through, you just send the the one little component. And if it's a third party service, it, it could be quite expensive. And so this also would save quite a bit of money for the company. So you can optimize that way, having your code split up into modules. It can, I won't say always, but it can also improve the quality of the product that goes out insofar as less bugs and regressions.
0: That's the other big thing is like testability is like by splitting your things into components, like you can do that without having to modularize into separate targets and things, but just like that sort of protocol-oriented programming and making sure that things are isolated in such a fashion makes testing a whole lot easier.
1: Yeah, and also you can be sure that If your test for each module, you know we don't always write tests perfectly. They're not our unit tests aren't always totally unit tests. A lot of times they are integration tests, but you can be sure that there's no integration test between modules because it's not really that easy to do. You have to actually work at it Mm -hmm. if you want to do it, which means that you can really test those modules separately, and it it can really decrease the number of regressions that are caused between bugs because using the persistence layer again as an example, you have a, a public API for that persistence layer. And it doesn't matter what happens inside, that public API isn't changing. So if the unit tests on those public functions are well-written and test every edge case scenario, then it's very unlikely that you're going to have a regression in the persistence layer, which will affect other parts of the app, especially like if those tests are, are passing. And I think that's really powerful. And that can be really helpful for companies that don't have QA departments is that's becoming a trend in uh, a lot of bigger companies. They actually are doing away with their QA department and just relying on the unit tests.
0: Interesting. How does that work? Because I assume like there's some stuff that's just as you use the app you run into, that's the benefit of QA.
1: I actually don't know, but I'm trying to remember. I believe that it's Uber. But I I could be wrong about that. It could be Airbnb have no QA department and it's becoming more and more common. And I'm not too familiar with what they do instead or how they make sure that there aren't regressions again. And they might do um, like slow rollouts and then that way they can catch bugs that come out.
0: Yeah. Okay. There we go. Yeah. I could see that where you just roll it out to a certain set of audience. Yeah. Cool. What are anything else you wanted to talk about? Did we miss anything when it comes to modularization?
1: I think it would be good to talk a little bit about uh some of the challenges that that come with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because like that's one of the things is as developers, we just over optimize the stuff and you know, we'll break everything into every individual target we possibly could or framework without thinking about the ramifications of having to maintain that. What are some challenges that you've seen? When it comes to modularization,
1: when I did the talk at SwiftIO, I asked the audience how many people had tried to modularize and it hadn't gone well, and there was a lot of people. I expected a lot, but there was actually a lot more than I expected. Yeah, and I think it's because, first of all, if the linking isn't proper, that can just cause all kinds of headaches. And as developers, when we're doing something new, we often don't realize that the answer is usually the simple answer. So you know, if we get errors which in normal situations we would be able to solve when we're doing something new, such as we've just set up a modularized project or a modularized workspace. We don't clue in how easy that error is to solve because we think it's something that we did wrong in the project or something different. And so I think that that's a, just the mental barrier can really be a challenge um, because it can be frustrating. And if, for example, you have your projects linked, but somehow one of the targets got removed from target dependency, You're not going to see the new data that's changing show up when you make a change. And that can be frustrating because if, you know, you've been solving errors for the last 30 minutes, you finally got it to build and now the data is not showing up, you might not think that it's something as simple as it not being linked. You're just frustrated and you can't think. And that can definitely be a challenge. So it can be hard for some developers to change from a project development mindset to a modularized development mindset. And that that can take time, and it's kind of like not as hard, but it's kind of like learning reactive programming. One of the the frameworks, it just it takes a while to change your mind to think in the way. Right,
0: and I think like too, just going back, like Xcode is set up in such a fashion that it's meant for C plus plus and Objective C libraries, where like a lot of the stuff, especially with some of these newer projects, a Swift UI or independent watch apps, especially with eleven out this year. It's starting to feel okay. So like we went from objective C to Swift, which was a great improvement. We went from the storyboards and zips to Swift UI. And I think that's a great improvement. I feel like like Xcode's the next thing that like needs to be overhauled because it's set up in such an antiquated way that it becomes really difficult to wrap your head around it and like get over some of these old antiquated patterns of building libraries and such. Yeah,
1: maybe, but the the other side of that is once you start refactoring, how many bugs and regressions are going to be put into a product that already mostly works? You know, Xcode has a lot of stuff in it.
0: Apple never does that. So they never have problems <laughs> when they, <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, I get you. <laughs> there's,
1: there's the whole thing, right? Like people want to refactor Objective-C projects into Swift because it's the new thing But like, if it's working, is it really such a good idea? Yeah,
0: right. Exactly. Maybe
1: a new interface, a new UI for Xcode would be nice, but the actual way it works, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, perhaps, perhaps, yeah. Maybe like put a facade over (laughs) it so that a lot of these, like my new details when it comes to linking and make a layer of abstraction so that it's easier to use for what most people really use Xcode for in the end. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, definitely. Like the implicit linking between projects, when I was first trying to set up a project for QA to test our packaged SDKs, I had pulled in the packaged ones, the actual frameworks, just the way that you normally would do, dragging them into the project. I had linked them and uh, I discovered that it didn't matter. The Xcode was still building the ones that were inside the project. And I was just going crazy trying to figure this out. And then it turns out it's because there's a little checkbox that says, use implicit dependencies if you go into the Scheme Editor. And so all I had to do was uncheck that and then it used the one that I had previously told it to use. But until I told it to use that, it was just doing whatever it wanted because it was like, oh, I see it over here. Let me use this one.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: So if that was more obvious, that would probably help. There's a lot of things that are hidden that...
0: They're just not obvious, absolutely. Anything else you want to talk about as far as challenges are concerned? Yeah,
1: I mean, I would say that there can be uh, a lot of overhead to start getting set up. And that's definitely a challenge. You're going to have to think about how to set up your repos, how to set up your project. And not just that, but actually developing itself can become a challenge because you've got to spend extra time during your design phase thinking about how to link things together. You also have to think about who's going to be using these modules. If the reason you're pulling them out is so that you can reuse them and you have an Objective-C project in your company somewhere and one of the modules you pull out is Swift, you need to think about... The way that it's going to work with Objective-C, which might not be something that you would have done from the start, which means that you could have this Objective-C project and think, oh, great. Why don't we just go grab this persistence layer from over here, this module, and use it? And then now you have this huge overhead because you didn't realize that you're going to have naming conflicts with some of the methods in Objective-C. And yep. so that that can be a frustrating thing that could lead a company to feel like... They've wasted their time modularizing because why bother? I can't even use it in this project. So you really need to think through things. I would say that modularization is not the path to take if you want a quick solution because you have to spend time ahead of time. as for thoughtful development and for thinking through what kinds of scalability issues you could come across in the future and building for those
0: Yeah, it goes back to, is this an MVP or is this like something that's long-term for sure? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of the decision-making process is, you know, if you want to just get something out there, do it whatever way is you're most comfortable with. But once you get to like version 1.2 or 1.4, like that's where you start thinking about, okay, how can I organize this in a healthy fashion? So that way, like you said, decrease build times, sharing code and functionality, optimizing your pipeline. And then, you know, then it's really worth your time.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say that the best way to start is with just a single project with the exception of if you have developers that are already experienced with this, then maybe in that case, the best way to start would be with a single project with most features and then very specific things pulled out like networking or persistence. And then from there, you know, as the project grows, if a certain feature is turning into a lot of files or it makes sense for it to be pulled out, then pull it out.
0: It sounds like you have a good idea of what are some common components. So it sounds like you're saying like the most common things would be like networking, persistence. What else would you say are some obvious like code smells of things that should be modularized in folks' projects?
1: If you do any kind of feature-based app development versus just dumping everything into everything, then it's you can actually just figure that out by the natural structure of your project, right? So everything involved with authentication could be a module. Everything involved with the user profile could be a module. Everything involved with your mapping or location could be a profile, right? If you think about the way that Apple has done, they have core location, right? They have map kit. They've got UI kit.
0: User notifications. Yeah, Yeah, user
1: notifications, right? So basically just uh, modularizing similar things. And they might not all have a single entry point. It might not be a, you know, a shared service that you have a single entry point, but it could just be everything that is associated with each other that the rest of the app doesn't need to know about. For example, in your user profile, let's say you do a user profile module, which would be probably a very small module. Within that, you have multiple models, such as user location information, their address, that kind of thing. The user payment information, you know, they might all be within that module and there's no reason for the rest of the app to know about those because only the profile needs to know about those. But the rest of the app needs to know that about the profile itself. So that's one way of you know modularizing and controlling access and responsibility between
0: parts of the app.
1: Now in that example, I'm not really sure if payment would be part of a user profile, but just kind of giving some theoretical examples.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. And anything like, I think any component that's going to be shared across multiple apps, like that's a clear case of something where it's like, that could be separated into a different component. So that component can then be shared by two different applications.
1: Exactly. Like, let's say you had a recipe app, right? So you've got a list of recipes, right? What are your main components? You have lists of recipes that could be a module itself, the way that that's handled, the way that it's parsed, the way that associated photos are handled or displayed, you could really chunk your app up any way you want. But if you're going with kind of a feature-based development, then it makes sense to start with the way that you have defined your features. And from there, once you do that, you might start realizing, oh, wait a minute, like this is a huge feature. Why does it have all of the? Why does this module have all of this stuff in here? Like this recipe module should not also be about how to format the photo, that should be in a, you know, photo handling module. Like you might find other ways to start breaking things up. And obviously you have to draw a line somewhere and not break it up into single files, (laughs) but you know, you, you can really start to see. And sometimes the best thing is to just decide, like I have this giant feature here. And I've got a bit of spaghetti code with the rest of the app randomly accessing parts of this. And if I ever have to scale, it's going to be really, really difficult because I'm going to have to change so much stuff. So why don't I make this into a module so I can control the API? And that's a great place to start. And from there, maybe you're happy with that or maybe in the future you decide you want to break it up even further.
0: Awesome. Before we close out, I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts on Xcode 11, like, do you think it's been a big improvement when it comes to modularization or just the overall development experience?
1: This is not a question that I can answer because I am still on 10. I work right now in Objective-C on two Objective-C SDKs and uh, there's no reason for us to move up quite so quickly. Uh, We tend to be a little bit slower paced. So
0: yeah, no, that's totally fine. Let
1: me prefix that with saying that there's often, uh, there are reasons there could be improved tooling, but as far as language reasons, we're not pushed forward the way that uh, Swift projects really are.
0: Thank you so much for coming on the show. I just wanted to cover. So we talked a bit about the uh, differences between projects and targets. There's different kinds of targets for like an application or framework test target, aggregate target, if you want to script something together. Part uh, projects inherit from settings and files from a project files in projects can share different targets, but if you have a workspace, which is a collection of projects, they cannot share files easily. We talked about the best ways to organize your product. It really depends on different use cases. And we talked about how, for instance, with like source control, you might want to use something like some modules to organize your projects. We talked about how one good use case for different targets is if you're doing like a QA build or dev build or production build and you want to use different user interface, the big benefits of modularization come to building build times, decreasing, sharing code and functionality and optimizing your pipeline, as well as just overall protocol oriented program. Good app architecture allows you to test different components. Some obvious cases of where something can be a component is if it's something shared across multiple applications. And also, if you're looking for a pattern to follow, take a look at what Apple does with their frameworks, because that's a good indication you might want to follow that pattern in your project as well. Does that sound like I summed it up pretty well? Yeah, it's great. Awesome. So did you buy anything this month?
1: I am in the process of trying to buy an Apple Watch. Okay, what happened? I had to purchase like gift cards in order to purchase it because I had to combine a bunch of prepaid credit cards into it that I had received as gifts. This is why I was Doing this ah, to purchase it,
0: wow! And
1: okay. I accidentally bought iTunes cards instead of App Store cards. Oh no! And it's been an di- absolute disaster trying to get this sorted out. Um, I spoke for almost an hour and a half with somebody, and he was great. And then he told me somebody would call back because they thought that they had figured out how to do it. And then I missed that call, and now
0: they can't be that on now trying to to get I it fixed think. is
1: figured out is just turned into a nightmare. So I'm I'm still trying to deal with that and get a hold of somebody that can help me. Oh no!
0: Worst comes to worst, let's e- put it on eBay. I guess. Yes, But like, oh, that sucks. Yeah. So basically you can't buy Apple hardware with an iTunes gift card. Nope. <laughs> okay. What kind of watch are you looking at buying?
1: Oh, I'm just going to get the cheapest version, the aluminum. It's my first one. I haven't had one before. Um, first of all, I'm really curious about the advanced sensors, the EKG technology. And I'm also, okay. now that all those sensors exist, I'm, I'm really curious about trying to build some apps just using them. I, I think there's a lot of potential of what can be done there.
0: Yeah. So you're probably looking at like a series four then, I guess if you're going to do EKG because series three does it. So they got rid of the series four from the Apple store. That doesn't mean like you can buy one, obviously, but like. They're only selling the Series 3 and the Series 5.
1: Yeah, no, I'm ordering the Series 5. I'm not necessarily, yeah, I'm not really an early adopter of technology, so I'm going to have this watch for several years (laughs) before I upgrade to one, so I want to make sure I get the newest one.
0: No, that makes total sense. Yeah, I got the developer Apple Watch when that came out, and it was cool at first, but then it's like so slow, (laughs) but yeah, I have a Series 4. I'm going to stick with this another year. Last year was my binge year of getting a 10s and a series four. So like this year, I'm going to like kind of I already bought a new iMac, I should say, which I'm recording this episode on. So it's not like I haven't given Apple anything this year. It's just as far as like a new phone or a new watch, I'm just, I'm not going to do that this year. I can wait.
1: That's nice. I'd lo- I'd love an iMac. <laughs> They're just not very easy to carry back and forth to work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, there's like a hipster backpack for an iMac <laughs> somewhere you can find. Yeah, the Apple Watch is really cool. It's gotten so much easier to develop for and like the heart rate stuff. Like that's, of course, what I'm looking into right now.
1: That sounds like a lot of fun what you're doing with your app. I can see that going over really well. There's a couple of guys here at work that watch people playing video games and
0: I don't really get it,
1: but I can see that being like extra exciting to see what is actually happening to the person that's on screen.
0: Right, right. See their heart pumping yeah. when they're beating a boss or whatever. So yeah, well, good luck with the new Apple Watch. If you ever have any questions about that, let me know.
1: I will, definitely.
0: Where can people find you on the web?
1: I'm on the, there's like the big iOS Slack, uh, the iOS developers Slack, and I'm on there. And also on Twitter, my handle on Twitter is EarthAbby. Or if you just search Abby Jackson, iOS, I'm sure I'm the only one out there that you'll find.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's been really good. Maybe we'll have you on again to talk more about this kind yeah. of stuff. And if you get a chance to do an Xcode 11 or Apple watch stuff, we'd we'll definitely want to talk about that at a future point.
1: Also, I should have said this already, but if you go to my website, abbyjackson.ca, not com.ca, that's where you can find a link to my nice Swift TO talk.
0: Yes. And I'll have a link in the okay. notes as well. Thank you everybody for joining us for this episode. You can find Bright Digit on social media at Bright Digit. That's uh, my company. Still looking for new contract work. So if there's anything you need help with, especially with Xcode 11 or Apple Watch, reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at Leo G Dion. And thank you so much for joining us. And we'll talk to you next time.
1: Yeah, thanks. Have a good day.